We're going to continue with Matthew 27, the account of the crucifixion. And so let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, again we come to you, and we come to you, Lord Jesus, as well, as we seek to, again, reconstruct in our own minds as far as we can the death of your dear Son. And we pray for forgiveness ahead of time. If we reconstruct anything wrongly, if we misunderstand, and we pray, though, that we might be motivated by the greatest fact of the cosmos, that your Son died for us and freely gave his life, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to you. And we pray then for insight and for understanding and for feeling, and that we might be touched in this postmodern, emotionless age, that we might be touched by his love for us, and that we might respond by carrying his cross and sharing in his death, that we might share also in his life being made manifest in our mortal flesh. Heavenly Father, please go with us and bless our love of him and our desire to, to know him and to make him known for his sake and for the sake of all that he suffered and achieved in himself. Amen. Well, we last time we got up to uh, Matthew 27, uh, verse 26, where they've chosen Barabbas. Barabbas is released and we read that they scourged Jesus. Now, John Pollock in his classic book, The Master, which I uh, really recommend, uh, 13 stripes on the breast, 26 on the back. That's what he reckons he found from uh, Roman history. And they would have chanted them. <clears throat> and men were known to have bitten their tongues in two because of the, the pain of the, of the whipping. Now, you remember that the Lord, the evening before, had been in Gethsemane and he sweated sweat as drops of blood. And this seems to have been hemihydrosis, which would have left his skin extremely sensitive after that. And to be whipped, to be scourged on top of that would have been, you know, all of this is, is unthinkable. And yet the record is here for us to think about it and to put all our sufferings, physical, mental, emotional, into their, into their context. Now, these miserable critics of the Bible say that there's a mistake here because the Romans didn't scourge and crucify because the scourging was enough to, to pretty well kill a man. Well, that may or may not be the case, but I, I would say here that we are seeing a theme that they made Jesus suffer to the utmost. And when we read that they stripped him, <clears throat> verse 28, put on him a scarlet robe, you wonder whether he was not stripped naked. And when we read in Hebrews 6 about the, the possibility of our putting the Lord Jesus to an open shame. This literally means a naked shame. And the whole connection between crucifixion and shame is perhaps because of the idea of a naked crucifixion. Now, why did they do this? Because don't forget, it wasn't just Jews doing this. This battalion of soldiers would have been, uh, I guess, from every nation under heaven for whom the Lord died. And why was there this particular anger with Jesus, this desire to hurt him to the maximum. And I would say that that was because of the way that he touches people. And he forces each person who encounters him to go one way or the other, that, that you either love him and give yourself for him, or you go the other way to, to this, uh, this hatred, which, uh, which we see here in the crucifixion records. There is also a section in the Psalms of Solomon, which is an uninspired 
Jewish apocalyptic writing, which claims that when the false messiahs come, you should make them suffer to the utmost to test their patience, and by doing so, you will prove whether or not they are the genuine messiah. So it seems to me that they were using that section from their uninspired writings to somehow justify pouring out their their hatred of Jesus to the absolute maximum. There is even a tradition that uh, when the the Romans wished to to really crucify somebody uh, in the most painful way, they were nailed through the testicles. And uh, I just leave that with you to think about, because they were sparing nothing in order to make him suffer to the maximum. And from a, a spiritual point of view, this was so that not one of us could ever say, there is nobody on this earth who knows how I feel. Or there's nobody who knows how I feel. Oh, okay, maybe there is nobody on this earth who knows exactly how you feel in terms of physical suffering, emotional, etc. But the whole unique purpose of the Lord Jesus, having our human nature, going through the life that he did, the experiences that he had, coming to its ultimate term in these hours of crucifixion, I think the, the purpose of that was that so, so that he could truly be there, the representative of every man and every woman. So you get those let's say, radical feminist types who'd say, no, no, if I'm going to be a Christian, I have to have a, a female Jesus. Because how can a male Jesus understand postnatal depression or whatever? And likewise, you get the black guy who says, oh, no, I need a black guy to be my saviour. You get the Arab who says, yeah, I need an Arab saviour. You get the Jew who says, I need a Jewish saviour. You get the white guy who says, I, I need a white guy up there. The Chinese and so forth. And, you know, those objections to Christianity, on one level, I can run with them. But, because, you know, we do need someone who is completely my representative. But they fail, of course, to understand the unique achievement of the Father and Son in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he there had our nature absolutely to the end and suffered in the way that he did so that not one of us could ever say, Not one of us could ever say, he doesn't know how I feel, or there's nobody who knows exactly how I feel. There is. Maybe not here on this earth, but there. Up there, there is. And this is the whole point of the invitation, to identify with him in baptism. This is why when you perceive this and grasp this this truth of his nature and his representative uh, sacrifice, this of itself is an invitation to say, yes, I want to do my part, to respond to that, and to identify with that, not only in baptism, but in the life of being in Christ, the regular breaking of bread, celebrating this uh, location that we have in Christ, this status that, that we have in him, and, and living a life that is that is in him. So, as I said in our opening prayer, we are intended, I believe, to, to reconstruct in our own minds, as far as we can, what happened there the huge emphasis which the Gospels give to his crucifixion, each of them, uh, is, I think, in order to, to help us to do that. And I think that's why the, the, the tenses tend to change very dramatically as you read through these records. Take uh, here in Matthew 27, let's look at uh, verse 38. In the RV, then are there crucified with him two thieves. And you get it particularly, I think, in Mark. They offered, they crucify and part 
casting lots, they crucified, past tense. Um, they smote him, past tense. They clothe him, present tense. I, I think this is to enable us to play what Harry Whitaker used to call Bible television with the text. That is that we can see it happening before our eyes. Now, all men usually screamed out something, Pollock says, uh, when they were scourged, in the hope that the lashing would be shortened. And again, the, the silence of Jesus in, in that respect would have been very telling, as the lamb does not open her mouth before her shearers, so he also did not, because he had no sin to commit. And he also refused to take false guilt all around him, just as all around us, was false guilt. You're a bad guy. You're not good. You're this, you that. Take guilt over this, that, the other. And he didn't do that. Now, the, the scourging of that very delicate skin after this uh, hemohydrosis, this uh, state that he was in in Gethsemane, uh, would, would have left him with, with a huge loss of blood because the skin would have been so delicate. And of course, you remember that in the last three hours of his da of his life, it was darkness. The sun did not shine. It would have been cold, and there would have been involuntary uh, shivering, which would have been awful, seeing that he was nailed uh, to to the wood. Now, this moment of the Lord being delivered over by Pilate, in verse twenty six, is emphasised by all the the four Gospels, he, Pilate delivered him. It's the same word actually translated betrayed. He literally handed him over. It's as if now finally he was in the hands of sinners. Now finally they had got their way. Paul seems to comment on this when he says in Romans 4 that the Lord was delivered, it's the same word, handed over for our offences and raised again for our justification. It's as if that moment of handing over was, in fact, as it were, uh, his death. The angels reminded the disciples, Luke 24, 6, remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered, handed over, same word, into the hands of sinful men. It's as if, it's as if the Lord had, had foreseen this moment when he would be handed over into the hands of these, these sinful men. And now, finally, it, it happens. Now, the same word is used about us in 2 Corinthians 4, in 10 and 11. We are always bearing about in the body, Paul says, the dying of the Lord Jesus, the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always being delivered unto death. Same word, for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, this moment of handing over into the hands of sinful men, this, Paul says, is always happening with us. And yet, of course, we pray to God desperately, oh, save me out of this situation, save me out of that situation, don't let it happen, don't let the cross happen to me. And yet, in the end, we shall all be handed over to death in one way or another. And yet, looking at the record of the crucifixion, one of the, the, the senses that I get is, thank you, Lord, for how gentle you are with me. Because when you think of how most of us shall meet our, our end, 
Yeah, that this is nothing. And yet Romans 6 says that his death, the death that he died, becomes the death that we die. Uh, and yet his gentleness with us in not pushing us to the end uh, anywhere near what the Lord went through is, is just marvelous. And yet, sadly, there is the idea that God's some kind of hard God. Not at all. If we have picked up his cross, and that's what we're asked to do, uh, then the whole account of his cross is us. And yet we, we do not anywhere near uh, come to this point of suffering, I guess because a loving Father and a sensitive Lord Jesus knows that we, we're not going to make it. Um, but his sensitivity to us and his grace to us, therefore, is, is marvellous, really. And the other amazing thing that comes out of thinking of him there in his time of dying and in the physical and emotional pain is that we are in him and that his righteousness, his personality, he is counted to us, that we are counted as if we are him, as if we did this. You know, if we're going to share in his resurrection, this is because we have died with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also live with him, Paul says to Timothy. And yet, have we got anywhere near this? No, we haven't, in that sense. Uh, and yet, we are counted as if we have. Now, that's a wonderful thing to do. See the difference? There's one idea that Jesus kind of did all this for us, and therefore we shall be saved. Yeah, that, that's true. But the whole message of Romans, the whole message of the gospel, is that we are in Christ. We are brethren in Christ, and therefore we are seen by God as Jesus, and his righteousness and his achievement and his death is counted as being ours. So that makes this whole account of him there not just an icon that you look at, not a picture that you behold with, with awe from afar, this is counted as your victory. Now the whole battalion, we're told in verse 27, gathered themselves together around him and, and abused him. Now so many times we, we read this, that the Jews kept on gathering together to make their decisions about Jesus. There was a group mentality going on here. And the fact that at least one of those soldiers, the centurion, who was in charge of the job, uh, later turns around and makes the confession of faith in terms of the early church, this was the Son of God. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It just shows that at least one of them had their doubts. And then, as we said in the previous talk, John twelve forty two, many of the elders believed in him, and yet were scared of the Pharisees and scared of losing status, so they didn't confess him. And yet... Those elders all came together and unanimously passed this death sentence and unanimously abused him, etc. So what you see there is that there is a force of evil greater than the sum of individual uh, evils, if you like, when it's all put together, in, well, when man is, is, is sort of in communion, when, when man is in society, when man is gathered together. That doesn't mean there's a devil or Satan or whatever out there. It just means that this is a phenomenon that when human beings come together to do evil, there arises a, a, a force of evil greater than the sum of the individual parts contributed by each of those people. This is why when you look back in history, you look at things like the Holocaust and so forth, you think, how on earth could that have happened? And this is the explanation, it seems to me. Now, that 
that cuts another way. It cuts another way in that. Likewise, gather together around Jesus on his side, we become stronger than we are individually. And this is why you've got church life. Otherwise, well, why bother with the whole concept of ecclesial life, church life? Why gather together? Why not just sit behind your computer screen and believe in God and believe in Jesus and read your Bible and pray to God and, and do what you can? Why go through all the grief of coming together in Ecclesia, gathering together? Why? It's because, in the end, the idea is that man is not alone, and by coming together, we actually can extend ourselves beyond, far beyond, what we otherwise would be spiritually capable of. Well, they planted a crown of thorns, 29, and put it on his head. Now, this could have been part of the crucifixion uh, or, or rather the, the torture process, because beneath the scalp there is a very sensitive uh, set of, uh, of nerves, a, a network of nerves. And when they're punctured, there'll be very profuse bleeding. So to push the, the thorns into the scalp, into that network of, of sensitive nerves there, this would have produced a huge blood flow. Now it already lost a lot of blood in the scourging, so he would have been covered in blood. And, of course, this fulfills all sorts of Old Testament types. And, of course, his clothing would have been absolutely stained with his own blood. Just as the, the priests were had their, their robes uh, covered in blood before they could actually go uh, and do their priestly service for others. Now, in all those thoughts, I think you see... How all these things which were apparently the very nadir, the very uh, low moments for Jesus, actually to the spiritual mind had meaning and encouragement for him. I mean thorns. He would have immediately thought of thorns and thistles. That this is the result of the curse. And yet, I'm the seed of the woman. I'm going to, through my death, going to get through this. And so with the blood sprinkled of blood drenched garments... This again, or was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy all the way through. So what can seem defeat is in fact victory. As they crowned him and put a reed in his hand and said, Hail, King of the Jews. I mean, he was King of the Jews. That was the point. That there he was enthroned in glory on the cross in God's eyes, from God's perspective. So, as I say, what seems defeat in secular terms, in human terms, is ultimately often for the believing mind spiritual victory. You may lose your job, lose your health, lose your partner, lose your kids, or lose all sorts of things. And in the eyes of the world this is tragedy, but actually this is all part of the process of our glorification. Now, there's a Jewish tradition, uh, John Dominic Crossan uh, mentions this uh, quite strongly and proves it quite strongly, quoting from the Mishnah to support it, that the, the scapegoat had scarlet wool tied to it, and then the Jews spat on the scapegoat in order to place their sins upon it. This is in the ritual of the Day of Atonement. And so the spitting, the repeated reference to the spitting upon Jesus by both Jews and by Roman soldiers, that is, people from, as it were, every nation under heaven, they weren't Italians, they would have been all kind of guys from all over the empire, this continual spitting upon him by all kind of Gentiles, plus Jews, 
again, the Lord would have understood. I, I am being treated as a scapegoat. Okay, I'm carrying the sins of the world. It's being put upon me. Now, all the time in the, uh, in the gospel records of, of the crucifixion, you keep on meeting, in the Greek anyway, continuous tenses. Sometimes comes out in English, sometimes not. The crowd kept on crying out, crucify him. The soldiers kept on clothing him. People kept on coming to him and saying, come down from the cross. Pilate kept on seeking to deliver the Lord. They kept on wagging their heads and saying, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. They kept on saying, save yourself. They kept on mocking him. They kept on offering him vinegar. They kept on offering him the painkiller. Kept on and on and on. Those continuous tenses are are very clear, very marked in the original. It's not reflected particularly well in most translations. But this is the essence, is it not, of our situation in life. That temptation and suffering keeps on and on and on. It's not as if one issue comes up, dealt with it, right. Okay, now there's another one. Right, okay, sort that one out. Next one. Now, these things keep on and on and on. People in tremendous suffering domestically, uh, dysfunctional marriages and so forth. People in very, very dysfunctional situations in life that they really can't get out of. Um, and it keeps on and on and on. Now, in those moments when you feel that, there's a bridge between him there 2,000 years ago, on a hill just outside Jerusalem, on a Friday afternoon and a day in April, and you, here, in the 21st century, there's that bridge. Because this is the whole point, that he there was you. And you know what? We will meet him. You will meet Jesus. I will meet Jesus. We will meet him. And then all this will fall into place. But the point is you can perceive it now, if you will. That he there, in essence, was you and me now today. And justice, for example, it kept on and on and on happening to him there. So when you feel that oh, this situation just goes on and on and on and on, and I can't seem to get off the escalator, it just keeps on going on. Yeah. He there is, is you. Now, when they put the... Uh, the, the reed into his hand um, as a mock kind of scepter. Isaiah 42 verse 3, A bruised reed shall he not break, he shall bring forth justice, as they mocked him for his apparent inability to do so. So my point is that in all these sufferings there was light. There was a, a connection with some Old Testament prophecy, not just to present a a neat kind of fulfillment of prophecy so that we in our day can 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 type out or look at uh, a list of prophecy on one hand, and on the other hand, a list of fulfillment. And say, ah, there you are, you see, Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So what? You know, he did. But you, you see the meaning that it had in practice for him as he was going through these situations. Wow, this is fulfilling that. Oh, oh yeah, oh, a reed in my hand? Oh, yeah, bruised reed shall he not break. And because they were mocking him, you can be sure it was probably a bruised reed they put in his hand, like a, a fake scepter, a dummy scepter. Yeah? 
And then they dressed him in his own garments, blood-stained garments. This is Isaiah 63. This is the, uh, the priest going out now to do his work in garments that have been sprinkled with blood. And, okay, now we're going to take you to the cross. Oh, I see. I, I'm going to be the priest now. Sure. Now, the walk from the courthouse to Golgotha was something like half a mile, about 800 metres, but less than a, uh, a kilometre. And so they would have gone out. And if you put the uh, four records together, one record says Jesus went out carrying his cross. Another says that uh, they grabbed hold of Simon and made him carry part of the cross behind Jesus. Another says that Simon carried the cross. And Mark, I believe, is the one that says, and they got him to the cross. They got him to Golgotha. Literally, the Greek means they carried him. Jesus. So he went out carrying his cross Obviously stumbled, it was, could have weighed up to 50 kilos, so that's like two big suitcases, um, and he couldn't carry on with it, stumbled, they say, hey Simon, come here, you, you pick up the cross behind him, then he stumbled again, uh, and Simon had to carry the whole thing, and then they, he couldn't even walk, they picked him up and took him there. Now when you're carrying something very heavy, you're focused very much on what you're doing. Okay, And you might not notice that there's a child's toy under your feet and you might just tread on it, and, and, etc. Because you focus so much on that weight that you carry. What is so psychologically remarkable and what is an insight into the Lord's spiritual greatness is that whilst carrying the weight of that cross, he turns around and talks to the daughters of Jerusalem and, and almost appeals for them to repent and says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. He could see the judgment that was going to have to come because of all this. And so, that is, I think, the mark of the man. That in the midst of, of deep physical suffering, he could look out of himself. So often we hear the, the, the story that, um, oh, you know, I'm going through issues. Oh, like, you know, could you come and help do this, that, or the other. Could you just come and uh, visit this person? Oh, there's someone in your town who's interested in the gospel. Could you go visit them? Oh, no, I've got issues. Oh, I'm going through some tough stuff at the moment. I mean, what a load of garbage. <laughs> what rubbish. I, I mean, <laughs> that's a throwing down of the cross. That's a self-centeredness that is, that, that is sort of made intellectually respectable by a lot of the psychobabble that, that, that we're, we're fed. The whole mark of the Christian is that when you are are absolutely carrying your 50 kilo cross, you talk to others. You look outside of your own immediate situation. That is the mark of the Christian. Because the Christian carries the cross of Jesus. Okay? So that, that is, as, as I would say, because we all fail to do this. Um, but this is the... <laughs> This is the nature of, of the Lord Jesus, whose cross we are asked to pick up. Because he there is pictured by himself as leading a whole group of other people, us, carrying our crosses behind him in this final walk. And yet, the comfort is that, of course, he couldn't even carry his own cross. His own cross was too heavy for him. That's very significant, I think, that his own cross was too heavy for him. Now, you know, that doesn't mean you can just throw down the cross or whatever, but it, it is a comfort that the one who asked us to pick up his cross, pick up our cross and follow after him, actually himself was not physically able to bear it. 
Now, the whole idea of picking up the Lord's cross and carrying it behind him, which is what Simon of Cyrene did, I mean, this was fulfilling to the letter, the Lord's invitation back in places like Matthew 16 and elsewhere to to do that. That if you are a Christian, you pick up his cross and follow behind him. And Simon of Cyrene did that. Now, we are asked to go out of the city with the Lord, Hebrews 12, bearing his reproach. I would argue that reproach there dynamically, effectively means his cross. So then this man is us. And you can read him in different ways. Of course, the question is, why is his name mentioned? Well, there is a, a Simeon called Niger, the, the black one, mentioned in Acts 13, verse 1, who had, um, who had two sons who were believers, and he himself is mentioned as a believer. And it's tempting to think it's the same guy. And he's listed there in Acts 13, verse 1, next to somebody called Lucius, who we're told was also from Cyrene. So I think that it's likely that this Simon did become a believer. But he was going someplace else. He was coming in out of the field, we're told. He maybe wasn't a particularly religious guy. He might have even been uh, a black guy from North Africa, from Cyrene in, in uh, North Africa, who, for whatever reason, was there uh, in, in Jerusalem, and he was maybe a slave or a servant, and, hey, you, pick up the cross. Like, huh, me? Yeah, you. It reminds me a bit of Saul, King Saul. He's out there looking for lost cattle, way out in the middle of nowhere, and then suddenly Samuel, who he didn't really know, comes up and says, hey, you, you're, gonna, you're called by God to be the king of Israel, like me? I'm just looking, at, uh, looking out for lost cattle. No, no. You were called to be the king of Israel. And this is how I think the call eventually comes to us. Even if we're raised as believers, this, I think, is how it is. Because you cannot be schooled into Christ in the end. In the end, that call comes in the midst of daily life. That, hey, you, I've got a purpose with you. I've got a plan for you. I've got an intention for you. And this Simon becomes a symbol of all of us. And... Maybe, you know, as I say, he wasn't a religious guy. But he suddenly was called. And he becomes, as I say, a believer and symbolic of all of us. So then, they finally get to the place of crucifixion. Verse 34, and they, he's offered, the Lord is offered uh, vinegar or wine to drink mingled with gall. And when he tasted that off, he would not drink. Now, this was a painkiller, and there were uh, a group of women whose job it was to offer the crucified painkillers. And he, he refuses to take it after he's drunk it. Now, why is that? And again, we're here to try to reconstruct in our own minds what was going on, and all sorts of reasons are possible. It could be that he wanted to wet the back of his throat in order to say something, but that's why once he just had enough to do that, he, he didn't want any more. It could be that his eyesight was damaged. His eyes may even have been out of their sockets um, because of the beating, the punching, uh, which for sure would have been aimed right at his eyes. But for sure, they punched him in the eyes. Uh, so he would have had black eyes, swollen eyes. It may be simply a matter of vision. Who is blind as my servant, Isaiah had prophesied. So that, that could be the case. Um, 
that at least his, his sight was, uh, was limited. It could be that he didn't quite realize what it was. Then when he realized what it was, that he wasn't against having a drink to, so that he could speak. But when he realized what it was, this is a painkiller, he said no. Now, in, in sort of theological terms, our salvation would have been completely possible, it seems to me, if the Lord had taken a painkiller. I mean, it would have been possible, surely, if, like Socrates, he had calmly uh, taken the cup of poison and drunk it, or taken a knife and slit his own throat. It would have fulfilled various Old Testament uh, prophecies, uh, etc., about animal sacrifice. Uh, but he didn't. And again, I think this is so that not one of us can ever say, nobody knows how I feel. None of us can say that, because there is. There is the Lord in heaven, the Lord Jesus, who does know. And he refused any easier way. This is why in Philippians 2, when Paul gives us that hymn of praise to Jesus, it talks about the seven stages of his progressive self-humiliation and then the seven stages of his exaltation in line with that self-humiliation. And the, the self-humiliation comes, comes to a crisis, so it comes to a peak, as it were, uh, when he says he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, as if death was required, as it were, but he could have fulfilled this a number of ways. But he chose even the death of the cross. And that is why there is a quality attached to our salvation. It's not simply salvation. Hebrews talks about such great salvation, as if the, there's salvation, and there is the greatest salvation. And that is what was achieved by the Lord Jesus being human. And not only by being human, but by suffering to the extent that he did. You know, God could have worked out human salvation any any number of routes, just simply granted it, symbolized. Uh, he can save people as he wishes, when, how, etc. With conditions, without conditions, or as he wishes. We can put a, a circle around God and say, you, you can act outside that circle. And so the Lord Jesus, it seems to me, freely and willingly achieved the greatest possible level of salvation for us. And for eternity we shall be experiencing that, all because of what a man did in those hours. Of course, in that brief life that he lived, but supremely in those final eight hours on the cross. And this is the, the magnitude of what he achieved. It demands everything from us in terms of praise, in terms of a life lived, in terms of self-control, in terms of money, in terms of career choice, in terms of everything, that he could achieve so much as a young man with so much against him, with the world against him, in such a short period, with such intense devotion, because he foresaw the possibility for us. This demands everything from me and you, absolutely everything. And our respect, you know, every human hero you might have, every human idol ends up with clay feet, does it not? Or does he or she not? That disillusion that is with, with, with human leadership. But in him is the hero without compare. In him is the one who we can get behind and say, he is my Lord and Master, and I respect him for his achievement, and I shall give all I can for him. 
Now, they crucified him, verse 35, and parted his garments, casting lots. The most wonderful thing in all the crucifixion accounts is the way that the actual nailing of Jesus, the actual crucifixion process, is described in grammatical terms kind of as a like subordinate clause. What that means is the focus, like here in, in Matthew's version in verse uh, uh, 35, the focus is on they parted his garments, casting lots. That's a focus, uh, but subordinate to that is, yeah, well, they crucified him, and then they parted his garments and cast lots upon them. Any human record uh, of this crucifixion would have maxed out on the actual nailing, on the soldiers putting their knees on his chest uh, and the, 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 the flying of the hammers, etc. And I'm sure he cried out from initial pain and shock, of course. He was human. But all that is not mentioned. That is a subordinate clause. It's rather like in Genesis 1 when you read about God creating everything, and it sort of adds, and he made the stars also. Kind of, well, yeah, yeah, by the way, he sort of fixed up the whole cosmos while he was at it, but, you know, he was actually making the earth. And I think you see in that the spiritual culture, for want of a uh, better way of putting it, the spiritual culture of God Almighty. It's rather like when the Lord is resurrected, he doesn't appear contrary to uh, you know, Catholic Church, Russian Orthodox Church with, you know, glistering, shiny garments and halo around the head. He appears as a gardener, because Mary says, like, hey there, mister, where, where, where are you done with the body, huh? And he says, like, look, Mary. And the point is, the point is that he was resurrected, the greatest victory of all time, all space, the entire cosmos. And yet he appeared with the clothes of a working man. Now, that is spiritual culture. That is the, uh, the humility, if you like, of God. But that is what I would call spiritual culture. And it's the same here. They crucified him, but they, uh, you know, and then they got on with parting the garments and casting lots. And, uh, of course, we, do, we have to reflect, don't we, that just, what, two metres away from the dying Son of God, there were petty-minded men full of petty concerns about material things. That for them, yeah, the Son of God is dying there two metres away from me. But, hey, who, whose turn is it throwing the dice? Hey, no, I want the sandals. Well, no, I want them. No, no, this is a really nice jacket the guy's got. No, well, I want it. No, I want it. No, no, I should have it. You owe me because of some other issue in the past. No, I should have it. Hey, guys, look, let's play a game. Let's gamble for it. Let's throw the die. Yeah. All this petty materialism in the shadow, in the shadow of the crucified Jesus. And that's what we can do as well. That in the shadow of the crucified Jesus, we're caught up with our petty arguments. We're caught up with our very petty material concerns in the shadow of the crucified Jesus. Now, I've said that um, the, uh, 
the actual uh, record of the crucifixion is is not sort of emphasised, the actual nailing of him. But John does say that not a bone of him was broken. And that was quite amazing, actually, that in that process of beating him up and uh, of crucifying him, that there was not a bone broken. And I would just mention that, uh, therefore, the nails were not put through the, through the palms. Because if the nails were put through the palms, there would definitely have been uh, broken bones. And you can feel that in your own, on your own hand. And also, a nail through the palm would, would not have actually held the weight of the body. So, from what we can see from archaeological evidence and from descriptions of crucifixion, they were nailed actually through here. Now, if you put your uh, thumb and uh, your, your, your other fingers uh, around your wrist, you will feel there's a gap there. You've got two, two, two big bones, right, both sides of your arm. And then in the middle, just where your hand begins, there's kind of a uh, rather sensitive area there that's kind of protected by your hand. This, this bit here, what I'm pointing out. That's called the desto gap. And in there, there aren't any bones. But you know what's in there? That's your sensory nerve system, like a, a, a very clever computer that, that picks up all the uh, pain sensors from, from your five fingers, and there's the nerve center right in that desto gap. And they nailed an iron nail right through the nerve center that, that is responsible for signaling pain to the brain. And that's how not a bone was broken. There would have been birds flying around, with the smell of blood would have attracted them. And all the time, he did it for me. You know, as the old saying is, it was his love and not the nails that kept him there. And that is so true. But the emphasis without doubt is that he did this for me. So then the... The cross was lifted up vertically and, and put into the, the hole, and they watched him there. And they put up a, 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 an inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And John 19 says that this was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Now, if you think about it written in Hebrew, it comes out to four words. And if you look in my notes, you'll see all this explained. And... If you take the first letter of each of those words, you have Yahweh. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, in Hebrew, is, is uh, spell is uh, comes out with with four words that use the first letter. The first letter of each of those words spells the the, the memorial name Yahweh. Yahweh. And so it was as if there was a sign over Jesus that said, this is Yahweh. And of course, that's why the Jews went all running off to Pilate, so take it down. And the way he answers, I think, might indicate he was playing a game with them over this, because he says, what I have written, I have written, which is kind of a, a bit of a pun or a bit of, bit of a, a twist on, on I am that I am. I have written what I have written. Now, Jesus had said in the end of John 17 to the Father, I have declared your name and will declare it. 
And so his declaration of God's name was, of course, in his life, and he's saying to the Father, and I will do so. And that finally was in his death. So then his death was a declaration of the name. And as soon as you think of the declaration of the name, you think of Moses, you know, that, that he wants to see God, and God says you can't, but the angel passes before him and declares the name of the Lord in terms of declaring the characteristics of God. I mean, God full of grace, forgiveness, judgment of sin, I don't turn blind eyes to sin, uh, patient, forgiving, uh, faithful, fulfill what I promise, and so forth. In other words, the declaration of God's name was a declaration of the essence of him, his personality, his character. This is the essence of God's name, and all the or, or, the, or the focus on how it should be pronounced rather totally misses the point. And so when the Lord says, I have declared unto them your name and will declare it, he is thinking about the crucifixion. And so it was appropriate, I suggest, that over, over him there is written this thing, this uh, inscription that basically says Yahweh. Because God was in Christ, reconciling the world under himself. Of course, I am not saying that Jesus was God. I'm, I'm the last guy to be a Trinitarian around here. God can't die. Right? Jesus died. He was the supreme manifestation of God in human flesh. And that's what's, that's what, what's got to be remembered, that he was manifesting God to us. And so the Lord um, declared, he says, I've declared unto them your name, and I will declare it. And the second declaration of the name, I suggest he's referring to the cross. And how does it go on? That the love wherewith you have loved me might be in them. So then this wasn't just uh, a pretty piece of exposition, as it were, or a cool idea that, oh yeah, you know, he declared the name. Yeah, It's all got practical meaning. That that declaration of the very essence of God there has to, to produce, to elicit between us, quite simply, love. Because that's what you see in him there, in the Father. The Father's manifestation in him, the Father's giving of his only begotten Son to die for us. You see what you see. You see love. Right? You see the essence of God declared. And the response that we make is not to simply say, oh yeah... Uh, and to behold it like spectators of the show. But again, there is this bridge from him there to us today. This, this, this motivation to, to love in practice. So then, there were then crucified next to him the two, the two thieves, one on the right hand, one on the left. And the the thieves, verse 44, they also, they also uh, mocked Jesus uh, and uh, reviled him, it says, just as the passers-by did. And yet, of course, as we know from Luke, one of them does repent. And I think that that was a pretty great repentance then. If he had just one minute before been, been reviling Jesus, and then he says, think about me for good when you come back, in your kingdom. And Jesus can say, look, you haven't got to wait till judgment day to find out whether I've forgiven you, whether you're okay. I can tell you today, I can tell you right now, you will be with me in paradise in the kingdom of God on earth. 
Now, what would motivate somebody to repentance when they thought, I've had my life, I, I didn't do it too well, and I'm suffering for my sin, and now I'm dying. And, oh, he's my saviour, but, oh, hang, you know, I've just been cussing him. That's yeah, better expletives and the rest of it. And I've just been cussing him. But, hang, he's the son of God. And yet seeing him there, seeing Jesus there dying, you know, a couple of metres away from him, motivated that man that, wow, even I, even I, even now, at 11.59, at the very end of my life, even I can be forgiven. And this is again the message of the cross to us, that forgiveness is possible. Even if you are the thief on the cross, cussing Jesus one minute, uh, and, and having wasted your life and, and dying for your sins, you, even he, could be motivated that actually because of what he has done there, no longer is even my sin, even my wasted life, a barrier between him and me because of his death. And this is you know, the ultimate uh, encouragement, the ultimate inspiration towards repentance, is it not? And belief in forgiveness. To think of him there. So then, they uh, mocked him. Um, just as, as I say, the uh, the, uh, the the the, the uh, other people did, uh, and the only difference, I guess, was between the thieves was that one of them just couldn't believe in the end in. In his grace, in, in Jesus' grace, is like the similarities that we looked at earlier between Judas and Peter. They, in essence, did the same thing, but one could believe in grace and the other couldn't. And so what you see here is Jesus basically at the day of judgment, ahead of time. Because the cross, in that sense, is uh, a foretaste and was a foretaste of judgment. He had people on the right hand and on the left. The one saved the other not saved. And then Jesus says, uh, sorry, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And there's a passage in, in Amos which talks about that, Amos 8, where God says, I will make it as the morning for an only sun, and the end thereof is a bitter day. Now, what can you say? Well, this was God in mourning. This was God in mourning for his own son. And why does it mention the sixth hour to the ninth hour? Well, I had to think about that, and I wondered what the significance of that could be. And so I, I had to look through the uh, concordance to see where else do you read about the sixth hour and the ninth hour? Do you find them anywhere else? And I was quite surprised that you do. And it's only one other place, and it's again in Matthew, and it's again on the lips of Jesus. And it's in his parable of the householder who is desperate for people to come, for men to come and work in his vineyard. And he goes out at the sixth hour and again at the ninth hour to appeal to people to come in and work and respond to his offer to do something for him. I just wonder uh, if there must be some connection. Surely that can't be just an arbitrary decision that Jesus made in forming that parable to say, yeah, he appealed at the sixth hour and he appealed at the ninth hour. I would say that 
Therefore, we're supposed to understand each kind of waypoint or each uh, landmark in the crucifixion process to be an appeal to each of us to get up and to go out and actually do something for the Lord, to respond. You know, one cannot sit before the cross of Jesus and be passive. You, you just can't be like that. Well, finally, I want to look at 46. Jesus cries about the ninth hour, Eli, uh, Eli lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why or how have you forsaken me? Well, we uh, we told in the other records that the Lord died at the ninth hour. And in fact, in Mark's record, it says that Jesus at the ninth hour said this. So this was just minutes before he died, in fact, seconds. If he died at the ninth hour, but he said this, Mark says, at the ninth hour, uh, this would have been, what, one minute before he died, two minutes before he died, 60 seconds, 100 seconds before he died. And I suggest that this is Jesus in crisis. I think all the way through the, the gospel records, you see the Lord in absolute control of the situation. Till you get to Gethsemane in the garden, where he seems to, to, to obviously falter a little bit, uh, but then he comes down on the right side and says, well, okay, I will drink the cup. And all through the actual uh, account of the crucifixion, he likewise is in control. All through the trials, he's supremely in control. But here I suggest you have a man in crisis. And this is the only time in, in the prayers that are recorded of, of Jesus to God where he doesn't call God Father. He calls him my God. Uh, may or may not be significant. But as you're aware, I guess, this is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And if you go to Psalm 22 and read the whole psalm through, it's full of reference to the crucifixion. It's very clear prophecy of the crucifixion. But reading the psalm as literature, that is the psalm of a man in crisis. The whole point is, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he goes on to say, our fathers cried to you, and they were heard. But you don't hear me. Why don't? Why not? It's someone who cannot seem to understand. Why is God not answering me? Why has God forsaken me? Now, looking uh, at the idea of forsaking in the Old Testament, there's three themes that come out. And if you look in my notes, you'll see all the references, and there's lots of them. One of them is that the righteous man fears forsaking by God. Do not forsake me. David says this so many times. God, please don't forsake me. The other theme is that God says he will never forsake his people, those who love him. Third thing, God says he will forsake, in the plenty of historical accounts, of God forsaking the wicked. So then, just like Job suffered, again as a type of Christ, the thing he said which I greatly feared has come upon me. Um, so I, I would say that uh, the Lord Jesus had a panic that he had sinned. Because God forsakes the sinner, but he never forsakes the righteous. And the righteous fear more than anything else, more than death itself, being forsaken by God, falling out of fellowship with God. And so I, I suggest the focus should be, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, I didn't sin, did I? 
how we to understand this? Well, I suggest that the Lord on the cross was our representative to the extent that he genuinely felt a sinner. Just like Jeremiah prays to God uh, when the captivity has started, implying that, yes, you know, I, I have uh, sinned uh, just as much as Israel has. That's why Ezra tears his hair out and says, so sorry, God, that we have married unbelievers. Well, he hadn't done so himself. We're told in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere that Jesus carried our sins. Now, what does this metaphor mean of bearing iniquity? He bore our iniquities. To bear iniquity is language used under the law of Moses for people bearing the result of their sin unto death. So Jesus, in that sense, so identified with us that he felt as a sinner to the point that he even felt a barrier between himself and God. Now, God did not ultimately forsake Jesus because Jesus didn't sin. And so, all you can say then is that the Lord Jesus achieved a total, a total identity with us to the point that he felt a sinner. And that's why when we sin and we feel that barrier between God and man, descend. You know, even in that moment, you're not cut off from Jesus, because he actually knows even that. And it's no good thinking, well, Jesus is my advocate and my friend in heaven, but like, he never sinned, he doesn't know what this feels like. Well, he did not sin, but the wonder of it all is that he was so identified with us that actually he did feel as a sinner, even though, even though he was not. The way this works out, and all uh, ties together with such perfect congruence is, is amazing. It really is. This Lord is our Lord. And he's our representative. Absolutely to the end. And that's why in baptism, his death, Romans 6, the death that he died, becomes our death. And likewise, his resurrection becomes ours. Thank you.